the editor. We write to ask whether you can tell us the meaning of the slang word bohunk, which we have seen in print from time to time during the last few years in articles dealing with foreign laborers in the United States with mining conditions, etc., and in magazine stories relating to mining and the like. We have noticed a number of words of the same class, hunky, etc., in your publication, but do not remember having seen bohunk. We are interested in the etymology of the word as well as its meaning. It has been suggested that it might be connected with the word bohemian, or the word Hungarian, or both. We would be glad to have any suggestions from you on this point, although a knowledge of the actual application of the term might in itself make this clear. And we should like to know whether the word is accented on the first syllable or the second. We shall be greatly obliged to you for any assistance in the matter that you may be able to give us. The Century Dictionary Company, New York City. What is a bohunk? A bohunk is a man who knows the right thing to do and then deliberately does the opposite. Sometimes we call these fellows fools. Sometimes we use stronger words to describe them. We laugh at them. We pretend they are funny, but we never respect them. And still, how many fellows are just plain bohunks and never realize it? They are given a good, clean body to start with. They know that this body is one of the most delicately constructed organisms ever put together. Their common sense teaches them that they must not abuse it, and then they eat every blamed thing they can lay their hands on just to satisfy their appetites. They go on committing sins against their flesh that even a dog would not do. They know that their bodies need exercise just as much as they need food, and still they permit themselves to grow soft and flabby, accumulating poisons, disease, and every kind of germ imaginable. The wise man. Come out of it, fellows. Don't be a plain dumb Dara. Don't you realize you can't keep this up? You're really not living at all. You only think you are. Cut out this foolishness and get busy. Drive those decaying tissues out of your body. Throw out your chest and give your lungs a treat with some good pure oxygen. Harden up those soft, flabby arms of yours. Take those rolls of jelly off your body. Get some honest-to-goodness muscle. Find out what real health and strength means. You'll realize then how foolish you have been to go without it. It's been yours right along for the asking. A new man in 90 days. Come to me and let me help you. You can't do it alone. You may think you can, but you will find you are wrong again. This is my job. I've been doing this very thing for 15 years and know just how it can be done. I'm going to pack one full inch of healthy muscle onto those arms in just 30 days. I'm going to add two inches to your chest in the same length of time. Yes, but that's nothing. I haven't done a thing yet. Now come the real works. Just watch them grow. I'm going to broaden your shoulders and deepen your chest. I'm going to stretch out those lungs of yours that are now sticking together like pieces of flypaper. Every time you take a breath, you will feel the old oxygen shooting through your blood and making your whole body tingle with new life. I'm going to put some real pep into your old backbone. I'm going to build those muscles in and around your vital organs. You will feel the thrill of vitality throughout your entire system. And all I ask is 90 days. Sounds good, doesn't it? You're darn tootin' it's good. It's wonderful. And the best of it is, I guarantee all this. Do you doubt me? Come on, then, and make me prove it. That's the stuff. That's what I like. Are you with me? Let's go. Send for my new 64-page book, Muscular Development. It is free. It contains 45 full-page photographs of myself and some of the prize-winning pupils I have trained. Many of these are leaders in their business professions today. I have not only given them a body of which to be proud, but made them better doctors, lawyers, merchants, etc. Some of these came to me as pitiful weaklings, imploring me to help them. Look them over now, and you will marvel at their present physique. 
This book will prove an impetus and a real inspiration to you. It will thrill you through and through. All I ask is ten cents to cover the cost of wrapping and mailing, and it is yours to keep. This will not obligate you at all. But for the sake of your future health and happiness, do not put it off. Send today, right now, before you turn this page. Earl E. Liederman, Department 1605-305 Broadway, New York City. No one is who they're supposed to be. The Celts, for example. If we think of the Celts at all on any given day, it's probably as a people specifically indigenous to the British Isles. Because the Celts of Ireland, Scotland, Cornwall, and Wales were pretty much the only ones left unlatinized by the time the Roman Empire began to recede from Western Europe in the 300s AD. But for several centuries, Celts formed the dominant culture across Europe extending as far south as Spain, as far east as Ukraine, and as far north as the Netherlands. It suited Julius Caesar to say that all Gaul was divided into three parts, but there were in fact dozens of Celtic tribes, some of whom left behind their names, or at least their names as jotted down by the Romans, in Paris, Belgium, Remagen, Bologna, and Zurich. One Celtic tribe, called by the Romans the Boii, and who probably called themselves something like the Boyo, lived and migrated across Western Europe from northern Italy to Bavaria. When Roman writers first needed a name for the lands known today as Slovakia and the Czech Republic, they borrowed the name German tribes were using at the time, Boyuheimum, home of the Boyo. Why German tribes? Because by this point the Celts there had already been conquered by the Gothic Macromani. They were gone, or assimilated. The name stuck, though, and by the early Middle Ages, after the Germanic rulers had been driven out in their turn by the Baltic Slavs, this land would come to be known first as the Duchy, and later the Kingdom of Bohemia. English speakers rarely describe anyone as Bohemian in an ethnic or nationalist sense anymore, though the term has endured as a description of a subcultural type grounded more in affectation than ancestry. The usage first appeared in Paris a century and a half ago, the source material for the Puccini opera La Boheme was Henri Merger's Scenes from a Bohemian Life, which portrayed the lives of artists and free spirits in the Latin Quarter with no obvious or apparent Central European pedigree. In Thackeray's Vanity Fair, which came out at roughly the same time as Merger's novel, Becky Sharp's willfulness is credited to her being raised by Bohemian parents, which is to say permissive, not Slavic. An 1862 article on Bohemian literature in the Westminster Review opens by making it clear that it will not be concerned with literary works from the country that has Prague for its capital, but instead will be examining the type of author who, quote, secedes from conventionality, that kind of bohemian. This drift in meaning from ethnic to cultural is mostly indebted to a popular and not quite accurate conception of the Romani as disdainful of the settled life. When the Romani first came into France in the late Middle Ages, they were believed, again, not entirely accurately, to have traveled there directly from the kingdom of Bohemia. The resulting term, Bohem, was, if a bit of a misnomer, still superior in at least one sense to another French ethnic term for the Romani, Gitan, the French version of our word gypsy, meaning Egyptian. The false Egyptian association was placed upon the Romani early on, as far back as the late Byzantine period. The Byzantines suspected that the Romani practiced sorcery, which was a thing they also imagined the ancient Egyptians to have done, Egypt being then, as now, a ready-made exotic locale for mysticism and magic. Once this association was established, it was an easy thing to affix legends to, such as the belief that the Romani were the specific Egyptians prophesied by Ezekiel to be scattered by God among the many nations. Humans have been doing this kind of thing to one another since forever. One of the most common names that various pre-Columbian North American people used for themselves translates to something like the true people. This includes the tribes we know today as the Navajo, the Cherokee, the Illinois, the Inuit, the Hopi, the Comanche, and the Cheyenne. But most of these names, the names we know these people by today, were not self-administered. They were given to them by neighboring tribes or by European settlers. The Cherokees' name for themselves in their own language 
and I'm taking a stab in the dark at the pronunciation here, so brace yourselves, is Aniyunwia, the principal people, the real people. The name Cherokee, on the other hand, is a Muskegee word, meaning speakers of another language, which makes Cherokee very similar to our word barbarian, which we get from Greek, and which originally meant just people who don't speak Greek. The Muscogee were already a multi-ethnic, multilinguistic confederation when Hernando de Soto's expedition encountered them in the 1500s. They called their confederation the Holly Leaf People, since use of that plant was part of their common culture. English traders called them the Creeks because they first encountered them near the Ochesi Creek in what's now central Georgia, or more accurately, because they encountered them near the Okmogi River, which the English mistakenly called Ochesi Creek, confusing it with a nearby town of that name. One branch of the Muscogee, who migrated south into Florida when the English came, were called by the Spaniards there Cimarron, meaning wild or feral, which over time became the tribal name Seminole. Cimarron is also the source of the English word maroon, a word sometimes used to describe the numerous Creole communities in the American South formed when escaped slaves joined and intermarried with groups of indigenous people, and even with a few Europeans who thought that this life might be better than lifelong manual labor under English or Spanish rule. Many of these communities had to keep fleeing westward as the slaveocracy expanded into new territory. In northern Mexico today lives a group called the Negros Muscogos, the Black Muscogee, descended from one of these Afro-Seminole Creole tribes. Down the Danube, a short way from Bohemia, lies its neighbor, Hungary. There's no solid consensus on why Europeans started calling Hungary Hungary. Hungarians call Hungary Magyarország, land of the Magyars. The Latin name for the region, Hungaria, probably originally referred to a confederation of Turkish tribes called the Onagur or Ungur, who lived in the area before the Magyars showed up. But the proximity of the word Hungary to the word Hun is too good for some people to pass up. So another popular theory is that Hungaria was the Roman term for land of the Huns. There was a medieval myth that claimed that the Huns and the Magyars were descendants of twin princes, Hunor and Magor, and so were ultimately of one blood. Today, the male name Attila is more popular in Hungary than anywhere else on earth, which is probably fine. There haven't been any Huns around to complain since the fifth century when, as far as we can tell, Surviving Huns, upon the death of Attila, took on the ethnic identities of the people they lived among, the Bulgars, the Goths, the Avars, the Khazars. To be a Hun today is to be a nothing, belong to nothing. You might as well try to resurrect the clan of the cave bear. In the 1830s, most of the pieces were in place for American industrialism to emerge, but there were still a few kinks to work out. To get to the bituminous coal in the United States required a railroad, using wagon trains to bring in the supplies that would provision a working mine and then ship out the mined coal for consumption wasn't even close to being cost-effective. To make a railroad requires steel. To make steel requires smelting iron ore into pig iron. You can smelt iron with charcoal, but it's slow going. You can also smelt iron with coke, which is a sort of fossil fuel equivalent of charcoal made from bituminous coal. But when all the bituminous coal in the U.S. is still waiting for steel rails to transport to the ironworks, well, you can see the problem. Anthracite coal, though, burns so hot that you don't need to coke it to smelt iron. And the anthracite coal fields of eastern Pennsylvania were already near the budding industrial centers of the eastern seaboard and well integrated with the existing canal transport system. The only remaining problem was that no one at this point had figured out how to make anthracite burn in a blast furnace. So the coal and steel partnership that would be so emblematic of the industrial age were in the early part of the century more like star-crossed lovers, merely a gleam in each other's eyes. The answer ultimately lay in replacing the coal blast furnace that had been used for centuries in charcoal smelting with a hot blast furnace, which just means that the air blown into the furnace to aid combustion was preheated. Anthracite coal, as it turns out, hates to catch a chill. The details were a little trickier than what I've described, though, and these tricks would be worked out by ironmasters with the longest experience working with anthracite fuel, the Welsh. American steelmakers lured some of these Welsh ironmasters to Pennsylvania with generous salaries, and once the anthracite furnaces were up and running by around 1840, 
the ironmasters were followed by tens of thousands of experienced coal miners from the anthracite regions in the UK, Wales, and Scotland. It was worth importing miners from abroad because not only was anthracite hard to burn, it was hard to mine. It was just hard generally, much less brittle than bituminous or lignite, and because it had been in the ground much longer than softer coals, it had also been exposed to significantly more geological indignity. What was needed to get it out of the ground in good enough condition to sell was trained journeyman hard coal miners, which Wales had in spades. As late as 1880, Pennsylvania hard coal mining was an almost exclusively Anglophone affair. Of the foreign-born mine workers there, an estimated 97% were from what were then called the English-speaking races, Welsh, Scots, Irish, and English, along with some English-speaking Germans. Within 20 years, barely a generation, the number of English-speaking foreign-born workers in the anthracite fields had dropped to less than half. In their place were primarily Slavic immigrants, Serbs, Croats, Slovakians, Poles, Ruthenians, Czechs, and Russians. Several non-Slavic nationalities were sometimes included under this banner too, Hungarians, Lithuanians, even in some cases Italians. Seemingly overnight, new immigration patterns had hit U.S. ports, and many Americans weren't entirely sure who they were or where they were from. They weren't Anglo-Saxon or Scandinavian or French or Spaniards. So what then? Today, nativism seems so inextricably bound to the right that it can be jarring to recall that 100 years ago, eugenics was a major preoccupation of many progressive reformers. The alleged threat posed by inferior races once went by the name race suicide, a term coined by sociologist Edward Allworth Ross to warn of the great dilution of America's Anglo-Saxon character that would result if white Protestants failed to outbreed immigrants of other nations. In many ways, Ross was what would be called today a left-winger. He favored heavy taxation of corporations, public control of transportation utilities, strengthening of labor unions, and a strong regulatory function for the federal government. He supported Eugene Debs' Pullman strike in 1894, and 25 years later, he even praised the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. But when it came to the mixing of the races, he had concerns. In 1900, he lost his post at Stanford University for calling for an immediate end to Chinese and Japanese immigration on the West Coast, telling what audience that, quote, should the worst come to worst, it would be better for us to turn our guns on every vessel bringing Japanese to our shores rather than let them land. Within a few years, Ross would bring Europeans, the non-Anglo-Saxon ones, of course, under the same umbrella. In a cruel paraphrase of Emma Lazarus, he would describe recent arrivals to Ellis Island from Croatia, Sicily, and Armenia as, quote, beaten members of beaten breeds. In other words, the worst of the worst. Of the Slavs in particular, he wrote that the reason they never had any great empires is that their temper was soft and yielding. Of Italians, he wrote, steerage passengers from a Naples boat show a distressing frequency of low foreheads, open mouths, weak chins, poor features, skew faces, small or knobby crania, and backless heads. Such people lack the power to take rational care of themselves. The most favored dances that everybody liked to go to, I'm going to use the word they used in those days, the hunky dances. Those were the dances given by Slavish people. Then they used to refer to the walk dances. Now you know what that was. But no, the Mex and the Mexicans had their dances, but we didn't all go to the Mexican dances. They were, we were a little bit afraid of them. We weren't wanted. Whether or not they embraced Edward Ross's view of things, for ordinary turn-of-the-century Americans, it couldn't have been easy to keep track of national identities in Eastern and Central Europe. For all of America's history up until this point, most of that region was under one kind of imperial occupation or another, Habsburg, Ottoman, Prussian. Whatever might have amounted to cultural differences between Czechs and Slovaks, Serbs and Croats, or Slovenes and Austrians didn't tend to show up on maps or in newspaper headlines. When Slavic immigrants started coming to the U.S. in large numbers in the latter decades of the 19th century, there was no pre-prepared ethnic stereotype waiting for them as there had been, for better or worse, for Italian, Scandinavian, Irish, and Jewish immigrants. As historian John Higgum put it, 
Slavic laborers impressed public opinion at large simply as foreigners par excellence, uncivilized, unruly, and dangerous. Hunky was the first anti-Slavic word to catch on in the States, perhaps not surprising given how much of Central Europe was controlled by Austria-Hungary up till World War I. It was first heard in the Pennsylvania coal camps in the 1880s, where Slavic and Hungarian peasants had been brought in as scabs to break the early mining unions formed by Anglophone miners. Within a decade or two, the term had come to denote not just ethnic inferiority, but volatile labor radicalism as well. Then, as now, the best way to discredit an organizer was to point out that they weren't from around here. Bohunk shows up a little later, by 1899 at the latest, and for a while served as an effective shorthand for a bad element in the laboring classes, wild, untrustworthy, and intellectually stunted. But by the 1920s, Bohunk had already started to become de-ethnicized, the way Welsh, in its verb form like to Welsh on a bet, largely had been a century earlier. A Bohunk was beginning to mean, by this time, anyone with a bad character, regardless of their family tree. No slur actually makes any sense. No one's character is actually connectable to their ethnic or national origin, in part because ethnic and national origin are also concepts that don't really make a whole lot of sense. None of us originated anywhere. We've all been in more or less constant motion since early humans first migrated out of East Africa. But even by the standards of everyday bigotry, the Bohunk slur goes ordinary slurs one further, nurturing deep in its core a completely empty signifier. Bohemians and Hungarians may have come from neighboring countries, sure, but these countries spoke completely unrelated languages, had different imperial histories, different migratory histories, different national myths, even different religious histories. After the Bohemian Reformation in the 15th century, Hungary even invaded Bohemia in an attempt to restore the Church of Rome there. Now I know that you, listener, need no persuading that the Bohunk slur is groundless. As we've just agreed, all slurs are groundless. That's what makes them slurs. A slur is supposed to be a gotcha. It tries to say, don't bother trying to pass yourself off as a regular person when anyone with eyes can see you're a so-and-so. This is harder to make good on when that so-and-so-ness may as well just be a meaningless noise, when it might just as well be an accusation of harboring loyalties to Fredonia or to the lost island of Atlantis. occasions early in the strike, Lamont Bowers wrote to John D. Rockefeller Jr. to inform him that the reason most miners were out on strike was that the union had stacked their ranks with assassins with orders to shoot anyone in the tent colony who tried to go back to work. In one letter, he told Rockefeller that the union had, quote, run in a large number of sluggers and black-hand foreigners from West Virginia who were in the pay of the United Mine Workers of America. In another, he wrote that, quote, it is safe to say that out of an estimate of 8,000 men who are out on strike, 7,000 of them have quit from fear of the Black Hand and similar organizations who, through letters or face-to-face, threaten to kill the men, do violence to their wives and daughters, and practice all of the hellish villainy that these creatures possess. As is fairly common with Bowers, he's confounding a few things here. There was at the time a Serbian society colloquially known as the Black Hand, Srnoruka in Serbian, which served as the paramilitary wing of a pan-Slavic political movement called Narodna Odbrana, the People's Defense, a movement that sought to liberate the Slavs in the Balkan region from Austro-Hungarian rule. They did use assassination as a tactic, and they would ultimately get something resembling their wish after World War I with the creation of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. But in 1913, very few people in the U.S. would ever have heard of the Cernoruka, nor would the Cernoruka have any reason to pay particular attention to events here. It was getting out from under the Habsburgs that they were interested in. The Black Hand that was much more well-known in 20th century America was the Mano Nera, a general and, we might say today, seemingly viral practice of extortion in Italian-American circles, typified by a fearful Black Hand symbol prominently displayed in blackmail letters. Black Hand extortion was sometimes conducted by Italian organized crime, sometimes just by small-time con men. Sometimes the threats of violence were real, and sometimes they were just hoaxes, relying on the legend of the Black Hand Society to scare their victims into compliance, typically rich Italians. 
A few years after the events of this story, there was a federal investigation of Black Hand activities in Southern Colorado by the Bureau of Investigation, the agency that would later become the FBI. The case files include Black Hand letters forwarded to the special agent by the sheriffs of Huerfano and Las Animas counties, such as this one, sent to Joe Castilla in late 1918. Dear friend, I ask you to bring with you $2,500, which I need so badly, under penalty of your own life, your family's, your goats, and your dogs. You have three days' time. Do it at once before your time expires. Don't make me write again. This is the second, and I have seen nothing of it. The third letter is enough said. Goodbye, goodbye. Maybe enough wasn't said after all, because it was followed up by another letter. Man with horns, are you laughing at me? Come out of it. Deliver the coin at once, upon receipt of these presents. Twenty-four hours of time, otherwise death. Abide by this command. This is the last opportunity we will give you. Peril to your head and end to your dogs. I further tell you to tell no one, for you will pay the price. Present yourself at once, and nothing more. This next letter was written to a man named Gioduto. We beg to inform you that by February 12th you must pay us $1,000, and if you do not do so, you will be subject to whatever punishment the committee decides. There was a follow-up to this letter, too. Mr. Gioduto, this is the second letter you have received, and we will not send any more, instructing you to leave $1,000 at the place. This letter was written to Joe and Mario Mattioni, who operated a general store in Walsenburg. Dear friend Joe and Mario, with this few words, I let you know that I want you to bring $2,000 that we know you can spare, but do not let the law or anybody know. Do as you please. If you want to live long and prosper in business that we bother for this time, bring the money day 28 of this month and take one saddle horse and take the way to Kuchara and listen that when you walk, you will hear a shot and you drop the money and still go on until you arrive to the depot of Kuchara to start from town at 8 o'clock at night on the saddle horse and leave the money in the sack. Incidentally, we encounter a couple of names of old friends in these bureau files. The undersheriff of Las Animas County at this time was one Jack McQuarrie, one-time labor spy, whose estimation of Camp Marshal Bob Lee we heard about in episode two. And the sheriff of Werfano County was one E.L. Neely. In 1916, Neely had run against Sheriff Jefferson Farr, who'd been running Werfano County on behalf of the coal mine operators, since he took over from his brother Ed Farr in 1899, when Ed was killed in a shootout with the Hole in the Wall gang. If you don't know E.L. Neely by name yet, you know him by his deeds. Neely was in the hardware business in Walsenburg, and as part of that business, he sold a lot of guns in 1913 and 1914, including the box of revolvers purchased by the United Mine Workers that we talked about in episode one. Obviously, Neely won his race in 1916, but Sheriff Farr didn't actually concede. He continued to illegally collect his salary until the Colorado Supreme Court ordered him and other Republican officeholders to vacate the courthouse in 1919. Neely was acting sheriff during this time, as evidenced by his relationship with the Bureau, but he had to finance his work with seized property from bootlegging raids until Farr was actually physically removed from office. The Bureau report I just read from goes on to describe a few of the murder cases that were associated with the delivery of these letters. In some cases, the extortionists made good on their threats. In a few other cases, the blackmail victims seemed to have taken matters into their own hands and murdered one or more of the blackmailers. But there was no singular black hand society in the United States, in the sense that we mean something like mafia. This was just folklore drummed up by the newspapers. And if such a formal society had existed, it's not clear what value its members would have provided to the United Mine Workers. Blackhanders were supposed to be opportunistic extortionists, not mercenaries. The whole racket was based on making quick cash. They would have had better things to do than camp out on the prairie for months at a time, making a few dollars a week, waiting for a kill shot. Still, it's noteworthy that this line about blackhand foreigners was not a piece of public propaganda. It was private correspondence from a rich industrialist to his much richer boss. Rockefeller was already poorly disposed towards unions. He didn't need Lamont Bowers to undermine their prestige. The real intent of the accusation, as with the scaremongering about the Molly Maguires in Pennsylvania 40 years earlier, was to build a case for a more vigorous exercise of law and order. If it could be agreed upon that the United Mine Workers of America was a criminal enterprise using coercion and violence to keep honest workers out of the mines, 
then what was obviously needed was a stronger and more legitimate exercise of coercion and violence, answering to the authority of the governor. Ironically, when the National Guard was finally called into the strike zone on October 28, they almost instantly disproved Bauer's theory that seven out of ten strikers were only acting under threat of violence by imported enforcers. The Guard was under strict orders from the governor not to help the mine operators import scabs, but they were authorized to provide protection for anyone out on strike who wanted to come in from the cold. There are no reports of any strikers taking advantage of this opportunity. to carry, uh, gave, gave the uh, strikers meat, take it to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did he sell meat to the strike breakers and to the militia too? No, no. Well, uh, they, uh, they quit going up the camp, see? They quit uh, delivering to the camps where they were delivering in Tabasco and Berwyn. Well, they quit delivering and they were delivering meat to the uh, strikers. Uh, for people not directly involved, that weren't, for people that weren't striker, or that wasn't militia or company, uh, in other words, could a person just go about his business like there was nothing else going on? Well, I don't know. I guess they all had a little trouble. Mm-hmm. I think that they were all fearful of their lives, as I remember, uh, you know, Dad and um, my uncle, and they all had to tread, didn't they, Mother? I mean, mm-hmm. they, they were all a fear. They yeah, were all in fear they were of all their scared. Mm-hmm. What kind of things could get you into trouble? Well, they they sh- they shoot they shoot you. They were shooting, you know. Just for no reason. Or did they have well, to? what they wanted, I think, they wanted to, for the strikers to go back to work, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think what he means that um, was Dad fearful of his life because he was just uh, selling meat to the strikers. Yes, that's why they they uh, they didn't want him to mm-hmm. sell milk to the strikers, the meat. Mm-hmm. What's your impression? What, what was your impression then of uh, of the mine guards? And of the militia. Well, m- militia, militia are are mean ones. They're just the militia. There were just. I know there was a, a saloon there. In Ludlow, you know, and um, the militias went in and in the house, you know, and they broke all this little girls' dolls. It was Rosie, you know, Rosie. Um, Franks that died with it, you know, died not too long ago. They went in the house and they just threw everything out and they broke all her dolls and just, just mean people. You know what I mean? They were just mean, mm-hmm. malicious. That after I think the regulars come out and uh, everything was, you know, they were nice. About two weeks after Bob Lee's killing and about a week before the debut of the death special, a man named Louis Tikis moved into the Ludlow tent colony. His birth name was Ilias Anastasios Spontidakis. The name Tikis was meant for American mouths to pronounce, but even this proved too much. To those whose remembrances of him have been committed to magnetic tape, he's usually Louis Tikis with a long American eye, or sometimes just Louis the Greek. Tikus came to the U.S. from Crete at age 20 in 1906. He would later be remembered in his village in Crete as a natural tamer, skilled at training wild rabbits to play with dogs and wild birds with cats in complete safety. John Lawson would later call him one of the quietest men I've ever known. When the Colorado strike started up in the northern field in 1910, Tikus was in Denver's Greek town running a coffee house at 1746 Market Street. Two years later, for reasons unknown, he left to take work in the Frederick coal mine 30 miles north of Denver, at first as a scab, but in November 1912, he led a group of 63 Greek strikebreakers from Frederick in a walkout strike, catching the attention of union organizers in the northern field. 
Adolf Germer, the Wisconsin socialist and former coal miner who would later become National Executive Secretary of the Socialist Party of America, and in later years would help John Lewis try to rein in the UAW sit-down strikes of 1937. Ed Doyle, Secretary of the United Mine Workers District 15, and John Lawson, who would soon become the strike leader in the Southern Field. In April 1913, the Union sent Ticus undercover to Pikeview near Colorado Springs, where he took affidavits from the miners and may have helped end a wildcat strike the Union wasn't ready to support. In August, he was sent to the Southern Field for the first time in a party that included Gerald Lipiati and two other organizers we know very little about, John Petrone and M.V. Hibbs. In 1913, Greeks were the most recent nationality to arrive in Colorado in significant numbers, and this recency made them the least insulated against xenophobia. Bloodthirsty was a common epithet used for the Ludlow Greeks by those living outside the colony. Some of this bloodlust was supposed to have been cultivated by their service in the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913, prompting several anti-unionists to wonder out loud if the Greek colonists should be treated as combat-hardened paramilitaries rather than civilian workers. The Greeks lived apart from the main colony in Ludlow, sharing two large tents that resembled barracks more than family homes. As recent arrivals, most of them hadn't brought their families with them, if they even had families yet. They'd typically come, just as Slavic and Hungarian immigrants had a generation before, and Italian immigrants a generation before that, to make money and send it home, not to settle. Finding themselves suddenly embedded in a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational community under duress must have taken them by surprise. They hadn't come to Colorado to be part of something bigger. If the myth of the Greeks as bloodthirsty renegades didn't start with Bob Lee's killing on the Segundo footbridge on September 24th, it certainly took inspiration from it. Lee's death was the first blood of the strike, and while in reality it may have had a heritage and lineage to it, it wasn't hard to paint a picture of it as savage and unprovoked. The Trinidad Chronicle News, one of Judge Northcutt's papers, had no difficulty caricaturing this group of Spartan-living, reasonably well-armed young men with salacious prose. From November 1913, a band of warlike Greeks have been carrying on at guerrilla warfare in the hills for weeks, and they have repeatedly declined to obey the orders of the strike leaders. Louis the Greek, leader of 300 of his countrymen, is perhaps the most conspicuous figure in the industrial war in southern Colorado. Shrewd and fearless, a veteran of the Balkan War, he controls the Greeks with a spoken word, a lift of the eyebrows, or a gesture of his hand. Ticus, of course, was no Balkan veteran. He left Greece for good six years before the war even started. But even many sympathetic chroniclers take it for granted that some of the Greeks at Ludlow must have been Balkan War veterans. If there were, there couldn't have been many, though. The first Balkan War didn't conclude until May 1913. It would have been quite a feat for Greek soldiers serving in that war to get mustered out of the army, emigrate to the United States, and find employment in a Colorado coal mine by the time the strike was called that September. It's also worth noting that Serbia and Bulgaria were also belligerents in that same Balkan War. Southern Slavs were far more populous than Greeks in Western mining communities during this period, but strangely, there seemed to have been no rumors that any of them had come fresh off a European battlefield. But there was a sense in which the characterization of the Greeks in the coal fields as spoiling for a fight was an accurate one. When Louis Ticus first arrived in the southern field in the summer of 1913, he toured several coal camps in Las Animas and Huerfano counties, talking to the Greek miners there. They told him of their unique mistreatment. They were harassed and spied upon by company guards and by sheriff's deputies. They were overcharged at the company store, even above and beyond the standard highway robbery that other miners might expect there. They were underweighed by the way boss, tonnages mysteriously decreasing over time until they were close to half of what they had been when they arrived. Ticus reported back to the United Mine Workers that the Greeks he met there were, quote, ready at any time, unless conditions improve, to engage in industrial war and to fight, just as their fathers and brothers have fought the Turks. These men are ready even at the sacrifice of their lives to fight until their industrial freedom has been obtained. The day after the attack on the Forbes colony, John Lawson assembled the strikers at Ludlow to issue new protocols he hoped would keep the colonists safe from future attacks. From each of the colony's 21 ethnic groups, he selected one man as his lieutenant. Ticus was appointed as leader and liaison for the Greeks, and a man named Bernardo Verdi for the Italians. The names of the other 19 are not recorded, but they would have represented Poles, Montenegrins, Germans, Mexicans, Croatians, Serbians, 
Bulgarians, Austrians, and others, not to mention the American-born, English, and Spanish speakers of both European and African ancestry. In the mining camps and company towns, ethnic diversity had been intentionally curated by the mine operators since the 1890s on the theory that people who didn't speak the same language would have a harder time organizing together. When one nationality started to predominate in a mining camp, managers and foremen would begin to hire from other nationalities to purposefully dilute solidarity. Now joined together in a single community at Ludlow, the dynamic was reversed. A single chain of command ran from each cultural and linguistic group up to Lawson, uniting the whole cohort. The structure Lawson was imposing was martial, but it mingled fairly seamlessly with the ordinary social fabric of the colony. The colony had a head musician, the violinist Tony Gorchi, who with his wife Margot planned dances and singing parties. The Gorchis were also longtime UMW organizers. They'd used dances back in the coal camps to covertly bring new miners into the Union. Mary Thomas, a Welsh resident renowned for her singing voice, was named as the official greeter of the colony, or greeter singer as she called it. Another of her duties, according to her autobiography, was organizing picketing efforts, though this seems to have involved the signs and marches type of pickets rather than the keep out the scabs by any means necessary variety, which were probably organized separately. As ordinary life carried on this way through the month of October, sentry duty and bocce ball games, first aid and sanitation, laundry and canning vegetables, rabbit hunts and creek fishing, drinking coffee and writing letters, attending regular union meetings and dances, the question in the back of everyone's mind was whether, or more realistically, when, the governor would send in the National Guard. Governor Elias Ammons had managed to rebuff the mine's operator's demands to send in the militia for almost a month, but not exactly on principle. Ammons was a ditherer with impressive dedication to the principle that a great crisis might just go away all by itself if only you waited long enough. He justified his inaction to himself and the world with the insistence that he had an important part to play as arbitrator, though if he had the ability to bring the two sides together, he certainly never demonstrated it. On October 21, under increasing pressure from the mine operators to send in the militia, Ammons decided to make a fact-finding visit to the strike zone. He spent two days meeting with strike leaders and mine operators and inspecting various sites of interest, then returned to Denver, still not entirely convinced that state troops were really necessary. Immediately after his departure, sheriffs in Huerfano and Los Animas County went on a spree of deputization, assembling a sort of de facto militia of their own, consisting largely of mine guards. In Walsenburg on October 24, at around 3 in the afternoon, a number of residents noticed a group of deputies making their way down 7th Street, the main drag that led west toward the Walsen Mine and beyond that up the Sangre de Cristos to the La Vida Pass. Soon, the deputies had attracted the attention of a small crowd that would grow to around 300 people. School had just let out, and many of the crowd were children. The deputies were headed to 627 7th Street, the home of a scab miner named William Vollmeyer. Vollmeyer had recently moved to the Walls and Mine camp to avoid having to face angry pickets on his daily walk to work, while his wife had stayed behind at home. After the picketers turned their attention to her, Mrs. Vollmeyer decided she wanted to enjoy the safety of the camp too, so the mine superintendent sent over some mules and wagons to move their furniture. The sheriff's deputies were to be their escort mission. After following the deputies to the Vollmeyer home, the crowd began to hound the deputies and wagoneers with insults, throwing sticks and tin cans. Some children threw stones. Once the wagons were hastily loaded, the mule teams began heading west toward the mining camp. Once they made it about a hundred yards from the house, the deputies suddenly turned back toward the crowd, forming a line in the street, and started firing. An Italian miner named Sisto Croci was killed immediately from a shot to the head. Two other miners, Chris Kokic and Andrew Onwin, would die from their wounds the next day. There must have been some return fire because one deputy, H.C. Wetmore, was grazed by a bullet in the ear and scalp, but all contemporaneous witnesses to the shooting reported that the attack was entirely unprovoked. A neighbor of the Vollmeyers, Anna Atencio, 
would later report that the shooter who struck Wetmore from the crowd was actually the first to fire, but Atencio's timeline doesn't quite line up with other reports. She claims that the shooter fired when the first wagon was being loaded, immediately prompting the fusillade from the sheriff's deputies. But all other eyewitness accounts maintain that no shooting started until the carts were already loaded and making their way down 7th Avenue. Immediately after the massacre, expecting the violence to escalate, Sheriff Jefferson Farr blockaded himself at the Walsenburg Courthouse with a complement of deputies and called for reinforcements. A block away, Union leaders blockaded themselves and their headquarters at the Oxford Hotel. The next day, a detachment of deputies from the courthouse approached the Oxford Hotel, but in the interim, Adolf Germer had managed to equip the miners holed up there with new Winchester rifles, and he posted them on the hotel roof, where they were able to persuade the deputies to turn back. By then, word of the 7th Street attack had reached Ludlow, where the colonists interpreted it, accurately or not, as the opening of a new offensive against them by mine guards, Baldwin Felt's men, and sheriff's deputies, three groups which by now were pretty indistinguishable from one another. Many of the colony's women and children were relocated to safer refuge in nearby towns and colonies, or, in one case, in a nearby arroyo provisioned with a single tent and a wagon of food. Despite the fact that the governor was still deliberating on whether to send in the militia, one National Guardsman had already been on official duty in the strike zone since mid-October. This was Lieutenant Carl Linderfeld, who had been sent in by the guard commander, Adjutant General John Chase, to act as his eyes and ears. Linderfeld was in Trinidad when Governor Ammons arrived on October 21, spending just enough time there to secure a deputy commission from Los Animas County Sheriff James Grisham. On October 23, he caught a train up to Ludlow, where he was put in command of a unit patrolling the railroad depot, using the Ludlow section house as an encampment. Linderfelt provides a very useful illustration of just how protean the law enforcement apparatus was in southern Colorado at this time. Initially sent in by a part-time general with no formal authority to post soldiers, he's quickly deputized by the county boss, then shipped up north with his gun and badge to guard mine property and escort strike breakers. Meanwhile, his expenses of $5 a day were paid directly by CF&I. On October 25, while the standoff at the Oxford Hotel in Walsenburg was still unfolding, Linderfelt was making his way back to Ludlow from Trinidad. A southbound train was pulling into Ludlow, and a group of four deputies rode out from the section house to meet it. Waiting for them, out of sight behind a steel bridge, was a small group of armed strikers who, along with another group hidden in a nearby arroyo, dispersed the deputies with rifle fire. More deputies came out of the section house, and by the time Linderfelt arrived, he'd come upon a full-blown battle. The shooting went on for about three hours when a group of about 60 guards and scabs rode in from Berwyn Canyon to drive away the strikers. There was just one casualty. John Nimmo, who had been deputized just two days earlier in Ludlow, was found face down in the snow. After the skirmish, Linderfelt moved his unit from the Ludlow section house down to Berwyn Canyon, which would be the site of the next day's battle. Starting around dawn on the 26th, strikers laid siege to the Berwyn and Tabasco mines, taking the high ground in the hillside. This made them very hard to dislodge, and it's not hard to imagine that maneuvers like this, ordinary laborers pressing their advantage on trained soldiers and gunmen, must have contributed to the impression that their ranks were full of Balkan Moor veterans and black-hand desperados. Linderfelt sent a flurry of breathless telegrams to General Chase for relief, but the general replied that Linderfelt would have to make do with civilian reinforcements for now. He couldn't send in guardsmen until the governor signed the order. Someone, probably one of the officers at CF&I, got word to Albert Feltz in Trinidad, who boarded a train north toward Ludlow, accompanied by Judge Jesse Northcutt, 30 or 40 deputies, and two machine guns. By this point, the strikers must have realized they'd pushed their assault about as far as it would go, and they quietly slipped away and returned to the colony. When they arrived... News of Feltz's train north had anxiously preceded them. Everyone at Ludlow was convinced Feltz was coming up to Ludlow to rub them out for good. As it happens, they were mistaken. The deputies and guns were on their way to Berwyn Canyon to reinforce Linderfelt. But even after realizing their error, there must have been a strong cocktail of terror and rage coursing through the strikers' bloodstream. At dawn on October 28, a force of about 300 returned to Berwyn Canyon, where they mounted a fresh attack on the Berwyn and Hastings mines, cutting phone wires, destroying railroad tracks, and killing 10 mine guards. A second assault was mounted on the nearby Tabasco mine, but almost as soon as it started, couriers were bringing in messages from John Lawson, 
demanding that they stand down. At 1.30 that morning, as everyone knew he ultimately would, Governor Ammons had finally issued the order to send in the National Guard. Chris Schoen. This episode's cold open was read by Diana Slickman and by Jeff Dorchin. New episodes come out, well, are you a regular listener? I won't beat around the bush then, they come out when I can finish them. When I planned this season, I committed to writing the episodes as I go, out of fear that if I waited till everything was written to my satisfaction, I'd never get it launched. And I still think that was the right decision. But the consequence of that approach is that I'm not going to be able to reliably follow a predictable podcast schedule. I write and produce this show on top of having a full-time job, and that doesn't leave much cushion when things go off the rails, as this episode kind of did. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to help ensure it continues, the best way to do that is to share an episode with people that you think might like it or to post about it on social media. But some people prefer to make an impact anonymously, and if that's you, by all means, please give the show a nice five-star rating under protection of a mysterious username. If I guess who you are, I won't tell anyone, I promise. The episode you've just listened to is a free episode, and that's because each episode in Season 1 is completely free, with no paywall, no ads, and no unique bonus material for subscribers. But nonetheless, if you are able, I hope you can subscribe to the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash effigypod. I pay my voice actors in cash money, and I have a few other expenses like books, subscriptions, hosting, and audio plugins. But just as importantly, the more I can pay myself for my time, the more time I can spend on researching, writing, and producing, and the stronger the show will be. I might even be able to get episodes out on a regular schedule. I'm kind of podcasting with one hand tied behind my back right now, which is better than both hands tied behind. But if you're able to subscribe, you'll be making a difference in helping me make the show more excellent and helping me spend more time doing what I would like to be doing with my time here on planet Earth. It doesn't cost much. Tears start at just $3 a month. You can write to the show at effigypod at gmail.com and you are encouraged to do so. You can also follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky by searching for the handle effigypod, and I hope you will. Thank you very much for listening. Till next time. Bella ciao.